Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and I'm your host, Monica Hadley. Caroline's not joining us today. Um, Our guest today is Elizabeth Schick, and she is the author of the AWP Prize winner for Novel for 2021, and AWP is the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, so we'll talk about that in a little bit, with her debut novel, The Golden Land. Elizabeth is a, an expatriate, an international development consultant who lived in Myanmar from 2013 to 2019, and that's where this book is set. She's also lived and worked in Angola, Mozambique, Tanzania, and Italy, and other places, and currently resides in Bangladesh and Massachusetts. She holds a Master of Fine Arts from Leslie University and a Master of International Affairs from Columbia. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with what drew you to write this novel set in Myanmar, and am I pronouncing that correctly? Um, I usually say Myanmar. Myanmar, okay. (laughs) It's it's people who are from there say kind of Myanmar, so they don't quite pronounce the R at the end, but um, that's how I pronounce it. Okay, so so Myanmar. Yes. All right. Um, Yeah, so, well, we, um, I've actually lived, as you you just um, read out, I've, I've lived abroad for many, many years. Um, so I've moved countries, I think, eight times in the past 25 years. And every time I move, um, what I like to do is just try to immerse myself in the culture as much as possible, to learn as much as I can about um, where I'm living. And I usually do that through a combination of reading, of course, because I love literature, um, and attending, you know, local cultural events, um, taking language lessons, um, not with a view to becoming fluent, because that's very difficult for me, but just to get a sense of, you know, to hear the language, kind of what it sounds like, and to be able to greet people, um, which is very important um, in the local language. And so that's what I did when we, um, my family and I arrived in Myanmar in 2013. And, um, but I was very lucky in Myanmar because I met a woman very soon after I arrived who was starting a book club. And she was a local woman and she invited me to join this book club. So the book club was very small. There were just, um, usually just about four of us, um, but I think there were six members, but, you know, it was only four at one time <laughs> showing up. And um, most most of the women were from Myanmar. And it was such an extraordinary experience because we, were, we decided that first year to just focus almost exclusively on books about the country. And so that allowed me not only to learn through the literature, but also through these amazing women who'd had such... Um, you know, incredible experiences. Um, and as we would discuss the book, we would also discuss their lives and what it had been like, you know, during whatever period the, the book was set, because there are many different books that we read. Um, so that was just a, an incredible experience that I, I hadn't had before. Um, and so I just kind of had all these ideas um, swirling around in my head. There were a couple books that we read which really made an impression on me. Um, One of them was The Glass Palace by Amitav Ghosh, um, who I actually just heard speak today here in Bangladesh. So that was pretty special. (laughs) Yeah, there's a literature fest going on right now here. And um, so I went to to see him this morning, which was amazing. Um, So, because it's nighttime here. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Um, anyway, and then there were a couple of a couple of things which, you know, were in particular kind of stuck in my mind um, at that time. And so one of them was just that there were so many um, people coming back to the country who had been in exile for many, many years because um, Myanmar had been under a military dictatorship for almost 50 years when we arrived. So it was, it started to open up around um, 2010, 2011. 
Um, and we were there in 2013. The book is actually set 2011. So um, <clears throat> there were, but there was all these people coming back because it was opening up. They were finally allowed to come back home um, after being away for so long. And as an expat who has lived away from my home for many years, um, I was just really intrigued by that because, of course, I'm able to visit. I'm able to go home every year and see my family and see my country and, you know, be part of my culture. But these people hadn't been able to come home. And so I just became very interested in what that would be like to return to to Myanmar after being away for so long. Um, and then I also was very intrigued by the idea of what it would be like to be related to somebody who had played a role in the military dictatorship. <clears throat> and um, that came about because there was I was invited to some somebody's house, a friend's house, who happened to live across um, the lake from a house that had been where <clears throat> the former dictator, Ne Win, had lived. And, you know, I we, we sort of got to talking and I, I said, whose house is that? And, you know, talking about it. And then I said, well, who owns it now? And they said, his daughter owns the house. And then they added, but she keeps a very low profile, as you can imagine, because he was, you know, this very authoritarian, um, you know, dictator who was responsible for many human rights abuses. So that just kind of really intrigued me as well. I thought, you know, what what would that be like to be related to somebody who had so much blood on their hands? So with those ideas all just kind of swirling around in my head, <laughs> I um, I sat down to write. I had actually completed another novel, which is not published, um, just, you know, not long before arriving in Myanmar. So I was looking for something to do, but I didn't intend to, you know, I didn't do all that research with the intention of writing a novel. I actually um, didn't know what I was going to work on, but I decided to push myself by just enrolling in an online writing course. And that's actually how it started, because this course was it had a, a strict requirement. You had to submit 3,000 words every week. Oh, and my. So <laughs> I didn't have time. Yeah, it was. I didn't have time to think about what I was writing, but I just had all these ideas in my head. And so I just started typing and I just I just went with it. And that's kind of how it how it started. Oh, that's fascinating. So 3,000 words a week, that seems like a lot. Yeah, I mean, of course, they didn't expect it to be polished, right. you know, really polished. So, but what was it was just wonderful because I didn't. Um, I mean, it was it was. I, I've never written like that before, where I didn't go back and look at what I'd done before. I just kept going forward, and then at the end, you know, I had a big mess. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> big mess, actually, because um, one of the funny things that happened while I was writing is. Um, so the book, as as you know, is set. There's two timelines. One is um, 2011, and one is 1988. And for some reason, I found the 1988 timeline much easier to write. It came much more naturally to me. Interesting. So every time I would sit down to write the the present narrative, which I thought was you know the main narrative. And then if I got stuck or I wasn't sure what would what to do, I would just go into a flashback. And so I had flashbacks all over the place and they weren't even in order. They were just all out of order. And it was like a, it was a hot mess. <laughs> so, <laughs> OK, okay. so the structure where you're kind of going back and forth between these two timelines wasn't something that you started out with then. No, not not really. No, yeah. that was something I that I did during revision. Oh, um, interesting. Well, it works. I'm glad. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I guess you could have done it with flashbacks interspersed into the current narrative, but I think that would have been harder to follow. Exactly. So some early, that's what some early readers said is that it was um, it was too you know it was almost jarring because it. it 
kept going back and I actually had flashbacks even further back. I had flashbacks to um, World War II, which was when um, the narrator's, narrator's grandmother met her husband, mm. who was American. So I also had that, which I ended up having to cut out. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was... Um, it was a lot of work to kind of reorganize it, but I guess it, I mean, I think it was, it definitely worked out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. So I got all kinds of questions. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying to remember all of them as you were talking. Um, first of all, your this book club that you um, were in, in Myanmar, were the books written in English? Oh yes. Okay. Oh, yes. okay. Yeah. And, and the club, was conducted in English, even though most of the participants were, were. Yes, they were Burmese, Burmese or Myanmar, yeah. which okay. is sort of their term. Um, yes, uh, they were, and they were mostly um, like older women um, in their, you know, 50s, 60s. So they, they were, they had grown up during the sort of time when it, the colonial period, I mean, you know, they'd, they'd been educated, at least, in colonial schools. Mm. So they spoke very, very good English, better than me. <laughs> <laughs> I got to admit, you know, as I've traveled around the world, not nearly as much as you and not to s such exotic locations, but um, I've been, I've counted up, I don't know, 20 or 30 countries, something like that. But I'm very grateful to be a native English speaker because you can get by almost anywhere in English, as long as, like like you say, you want to be able to know how to greet people. So I always try and learn, hello, goodbye, please, thank you, I'm sorry, and mm -hmm. or excuse me. <laughs> yeah. And if I've got those, and maybe bathroom, and <laughs> if I have those, I feel like I can, can kind of get along. <laughs> so I did want to ask about Burma versus Myanmar, and what's the... Yeah, you know when question. did when did it change names and why? So um, it changed names in 1989. Um, so Burma was the British name for the country as at, for the colony. Okay. You know, so that was derived from. I I mean, my understanding is it was derived from the word Bamar, which refers to the largest ethnic group in in Myanmar. Um, and then the military government decided to change the name and they wanted, I mean, they, what they said was that they wanted a name which was more inclusive. So they came up with Myanmar, which um, I don't actually really know that much about the history of that word. But um, so what you really have is a col one name which was given by you know, the colonizer and another name, which is given by the military regime. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, that's why it both names are sort of still used in the United Nations. It's Myanmar, but like the U.S. Embassy is the U.S. Embassy in Burma. Um, so it's um, the official name is Myanmar, but there are still some countries which refer to it as Burma. And and many people, depending on what generation they belong to, will also refer to it as Burma. OK. And is Myanmar or Burma one island, multiple islands or where is it exactly? Uh, no, it's not an island. It's not an it's island. Actually, OK. Um, it's. Southeast Asia, okay. so it borders um, Thailand. That's probably its longest border. Okay. There's also um, a small border with Bangladesh, so I'm pretty close to it now. And there's also a border with China and India. Mm. So it's kind of hard to get your head around that because <laughs> those countries don't seem to necessarily all um, meet, but they... Um, yeah, there's like India is a very it's like a little piece of India that comes out. And, OK, um, OK. Yeah. I don't know Not why I was thinking of it as an island. I guess I was <laughs> thinking of the more like the um, Singapore or the Philippines. Somehow I always related mm -hmm. Burma to, to those, probably because they were all British colonies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what was 
Burma before it was a British colony? Was it a single nation or was it of um, a number of tribes that were not? Um, actually, it has a very long history, several different um, dynasties uh, that goes back thousands of years. It's it's really fascinating. And if you do ever have the chance to go there, um, and right now it's not a good time because unfortunately the military has come up, come back. Oh. But uh, yeah, that's a very sad um, situation. But there are um, all kinds, you know, you can go to the different locations of where the different kingdoms were located. Um, so there's like the Pe Begu um, dynasty, which I think is in the, was in the south, the Mon dynasty, the Kongbong dynasty is, is the one that's in the book with the last king and queen were Queen Supailat and um, King Thibault. And that was the the last the end of of that dynasty when they were exiled to India. Okay. But <clears throat> and was it the whole nation that they <laughs> that they controlled of what we now consider um, Burma or Myanmar or just part yes, of it? But it was not, so I think um, I'm I'm not you know a historian, <laughs> but there were th there were I believe there were three Anglo um, or. Um, what do they call them? Um, there were three different wars in which um, different parts of what is now Myanmar came under control of the British. Mm. So it didn't happen all at once. Okay. But the final, the final part was the one that 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 I that is in the in the book when, um, and I think that was 1885, I believe. Okay. Okay. So. Um... Yeah, that's it's interesting how little most Americans know about that part of the world. So this and a novel is a nice way to get a little bit of history. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I agree with you more. That's how I I like to learn. Yeah, about yeah, the world. yeah. And you feel it too. You know, you're not. It's not just a dry historical, uh, you know, something that's going to put you to sleep. It's you actually like learn through being the character and seeing seeing their world and i feel like that's how i like to learn anyway absolutely you're listening to writers voices and our guest today is elizabeth schick author of the golden land so now the the main character or the um sort of point of view character is a young uh, a young woman and she goes well, tell us a little bit about about her and why you chose her to tell this story. Um, okay, yeah. So um, the story is about um, her name is Etta. She's the narrator. It's first person, um, and she. It's about her. She's grieving her the 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 death of her grandmother, her Burmese grandmother, who. Um, she had a very complicated and difficult relationship with. Um, so as the novel opens, um, Etta is sorting through her grandmother's belongings and confronted with a flood of memories, of childhood memories. And some of those memories are very um, difficult and some are, you know, some are happier, of course. Um, but most of them revolve around this 1988 family reunion um, that Etta and her family spent in in what was then Burma. It was right before it changed to its name to Myanmar. Um, and then, uh, meanwhile, so so Etta's kind of dealing with these these emotions around the memories when her sister, who is seven years younger, so has a completely different set of memories from that same trip. Um, decides somewhat impulsively and against Etta's wishes to take their grandmother's ashes back to Myanmar. Um, and this leaves Etta with this, um, you know, dilemma of what to do, uh, whether to stay in Boston where she feels safe with her fiancé and her um, career, which is going well, or to follow her sister back to Myanmar um, and face, you know, face these memories. Mm. Um, so 
Why Etta? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I don't know, actually. Um, it sort of came to me when I started writing the first, the very first line I wrote, which I didn't end up keeping was, and it was also past tense, you know, I had changed it to present tense in the, in the meantime, but it was, I, I couldn't stop thinking about Burma. And you know, I, I just kind of went with that, that I just had this voice in my head um, of this young woman who couldn't couldn't get Burma out of her mind. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question. I I don't know the <laughs> well, Etta is is um, Burmese American. Her father was American. Mm -hmm. Her mother was um, Burmese. And um, was her mother born in Burma? So or? her mother, no, no, her mother's actually half Burmese. Oh, right, right, Edda's. yeah. So yeah. her mother, um, yeah, because the grandmother, you know, met her her husband in Burma during World War II. He was an American soldier. And then they, he took her back to the U.S. Okay. And they settled in Boston. And then, um, <clears throat> Yeah, so the mother was half Burmese, and then she married an American, um, and so Etta is a quarter, and her sister are both a quarter Burmese. And Etta, not that that matters. No, not that we should be <laughs> And Etta looks Burmese, but her sister Parker does not. She looks she's yes. blonde and 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 uh, looks quite different. So um, when they. Um, I don't know. Was there? We we hear sometimes about. I just wondered if you ran into any sort of pushback on the idea that you were writing from the point of view of a of someone who is different than you, because we do get some pushback sometimes on oh, on yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, way I've certainly given it a lot of thought myself. I was probably about halfway through the book when I kind of like looked up and thought, you know, oh, <laughs> what have I done, you know, <laughs> or what am I doing? But I was really too far into it to to stop. Um, I mean, I haven't I haven't experienced any pushback yet. The the prize that the book won. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I did I did experience a little bit of pushback um, in the sense that the I, I didn't go through a, a regular query process, um, but I did meet with a, a few agents, which were mostly just I had had some connections, so I met them or I met them at a conference or something like that. So they weren't I wasn't querying them, but I had the opportunity to sit down with them and, and speak with them. And there were three of them. All three said to me that they thought the book was really, you know, what they read was was really well written and they liked the story but that they didn't think that they could sell it mm. because I was white. Uh. Um, so that's when I actually um, decided to apply to contests. And all the contests I applied to were, were blind submissions. So um, <clears throat> the first one I applied to was the AWP um, award for the prize for the novel. And um and that's the one it won and the judge was was actually asian american so um i you know i i don't know it's such a complicated issue i, I know i definitely agree that we need to diversify the publishing industry um i hope everybody agrees with that you know that we need more diverse books more diverse writers more diverse editors you know at all levels um, but I guess, um, I mean, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea of saying who can write which stories. Um, I do understand the intention behind, behind some of that conversation. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's important to honor people's, people's heritage. Um, but I just feel a little uncomfortable with the idea of, um, of just like we were doing, you know, a minute ago, dividing people up yeah, into, yeah. you know, because culture is 
a fluid concept. We, all of us, belong to many different cultures and subcultures. And if you start to sort of say, okay, you know, you have to be in this box and you have to be in that box, you can only write about this, you can only write about that. But what about people who are mixed? Or what about people like me who have lived abroad for 25 years? You know, what can I write about? Right, know? right. Can I, can I write about my country where I haven't lived for 25 years? Uh-huh. Or can I write... <laughs> country where I did live for six years. So, you know, I think, I think it's complicated. Um, but I also do, like I said, I do understand where the movement is coming from, because it's horrible when, when people write, you know, stereotypes of other cultures. Yes. And I think that that's what's most important is to, to when we're writing about any culture, even our own, we need to avoid stereotypes and we need to really, well, not avoid them because that's almost impossible to do, but to to try to like confront them and deepen them and make make our characters fuller, um, make them more than the stereotype. Well, I think part of the criticism um, also is is this idea that we have that um, there's a that publishing is is a like a pie and there's only a certain slice allowed for Asian American stories or East Asian stories in the U.S. publishing and so if you get part of that slice then somebody from that culture is cut out and or doesn't have that opportunity but I'm not sure that's really true anymore it may have been at one time but it may also be yeah. that someone reads your story and then goes out and looks for more stories. That is, yeah, absolutely like that. what I hope. Yeah, to. yeah. So it, you may be expanding the pie instead of taking somebody's slice. Yeah. <laughs> and in the case of, of, yeah, in the case of Myanmar, you know, there there is not that much written about it in English. I mean, that's not to say there aren't some, some great books out there already, but there, there's not it's not a huge amount. There's not a flood of books um, about Myanmar and, and I hope there will be, but I, I do also hope that, you know, the golden land will inspire other, other people to write their stories mm. um, from Myanmar and everywhere in the world. Um, and like you said, inspire readers to, to dig in deeper. And I have actually on my website, I have, a whole page dedicated to Myanmar and several, I list many of the books that I read when I first moved there. Um, And I also list, you know, different organizations that you can get involved in and, and um, support the, the resistance movement there now that the military has come back. Mm -hmm. Wow. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. Our guest today is Elizabeth Schick, author of The Golden Land. So, Elizabeth, you have mentioned that you've lived overseas for 25 years. And what is your job, you know, your day job when you're not writing? Um, well, what first brought me overseas was I, um, I worked in international development um, and humanitarian affairs. So, um, and I did work in that industry for, for many years. Um, but, uh, about, well, after my children were born, I sort of slowed down a little bit. I started, you know, instead of working full time, I was doing consulting, which was sometimes still full time, but, um, you know, a little bit more flexible. Um, and, I continued to do that for many years, but actually Myanmar was the first country where I did not work um, for money. <laughs> <laughs> so I was writing full time ah. uh, and also doing a lot of volunteering. I was I volunteered for Penn Myanmar, um, which was a great experience. And I was also on the school board of my my children's international school. <laughs> Wow. And what drew you into this type of work and and wanting to live overseas? That's a great question. Um, You know, I I don't know exactly. I I think I've I've thought about this a lot. You know, I, I was as a child. I was always interested in, you know, I don't I didn't call it culture at the time, but I was always just interested in what made other families tick, you know, how they were different from my family. And even though 
where I grew up outside of Boston, it was very homogenous. Um, I still was intrigued by just like the, the small differences, you know, sort of one side of the fence would be like a very eccentric artistic family. And on the other side, a very strict family and on the other side, a vibrant Italian family, you know. Um, and so I was always very interested in that. Um, and then when I got to college, I started just taking all sorts of different courses um, in, you know, learning about other cultures, uh, mostly Africa. And for my junior year abroad, I decided to go to Tanzania um, for the full year. So I was a student at the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. And that really, I think, transformed me um, because after that, I I don't think I didn't really want to stay put anymore. <laughs> I, wow. I really just wanted to get back. Um, I love Tanzania so much and I just wanted to get back there any way I could. So after I graduated from college, um, I didn't know exactly what to do for a while. I waited tables um, and then eventually I, I realized I need to go back. I need to go to grad school if, if I want to um, seriously like work abroad um, in, and I, I'm not even sure that I, like development seemed like the right avenue, but I'm not sure now looking back that it was really what I wanted to do. I think it was just a way to get back mm, <laughs> okay. um, to Africa. Although I, I shouldn't say that. I mean, even now I'm dabbling a little bit in, in, in that work again. So, um, it is, it is interesting, but, um, what exactly yeah. is development? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, it's working with, with, um, local communities and trying to improve the, the quality of life, you know, food security or, um, education. It's kind of, it's very broad actually. Um, or in the case of, you know, if there's an emergency in the country, like I've worked in places like Angola, where there was a war on. So then it's um, often there's like food, food distribution because people can't get food or can't grow their own food because of the war. Um, so it's very broad. It depends on which, you know, part you're, you're involved in. I was um, worked in project management. So it was different projects. Sometimes like in Angola, there was like mine awareness for landmines mm. that, I, that you know, I was involved in. And um, what else? Um, yeah, just wow. lots of different development projects. But what ended up happening was that I would always end up becoming the writer. <laughs> like ah. the proposal writer or the, you know, project um report writer, the report writer, communications, um, all of that. Um, so I guess I was, I always, I didn't know that I w wanted to write then, but I always enjoyed writing. It was just that it wasn't fiction. Um, and it took me a very long time to actually realize that I wanted to write fiction. I only started um, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, and I was almost 40 then, so, <laughs> so <laughs> much later than many people. <laughs> and um... Have you been, so this is the second novel that you've written, The Golden Land? Yes, yes. Have you done uh, other short stories too? I've, I've written a few short stories, but not very many. Um, I actually managed to go through my entire um, MFA program without writing any short stories. <laughs> <laughs> it was very tricky to, do, to manage to do that, but wow. I, I like long form. I like... Um, the bigness of of novels and you know all the intricacies and kind of it's like a puzzle fitting pieces together well you mentioned that that Myanmar was the first place that you did didn't go for a job basically so what did mm -hmm. take you there oh my husband's work ah okay okay yeah. gotcha yeah. so he's with we met um I mean, we've been married 25 years now, so we met in Angola, um, and he worked for the UN then. He still works for the United Nations. Okay. And that's interesting, because one of the characters in the in your book 
one of the Bur yes. Burmese characters works for the United Nations. Yeah, and, the same organization as he does. <laughs> and you and you mention in the in there that it's kind of looked at the other other people may not think that that's a good thing for her to be doing. Yeah, in Myanmar, um, in particular, there was a lot of mistrust of, um, well, of the outside world in general, um, but of the UN um, in particular, there there was for, um, well, I was going to say for a period, but actually it's still true today, I think. Um, and a lot of, you know, some of that was like really propaganda from the government because the military government um, not not wanting, um, you know, there was a, they were often at odds. Right, that way. right. Yeah, of course. Of course. So let's get back to the Golden Land. And one of the, you know, it's, it's, to me, it was fascinating because it was, there were so many layers to this story. There was the, what was happening now in 2011. There was what was happening in 1988. 88. Um, there was this history, the whole, you know, history of Myanmar in there, mm -hmm. but also the whole time it's sort of like, if Etta would just be a little more open and talk about things, she wouldn't be having all these problems. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A friend of mine said, recently just sent me an email having read the book and she was like, you know, like, I like characters and you just want to slap them. <laughs> So do you think this is, is, is that part of uh, Burmese culture, do you think, to kind of keep, because the grandmother too, you know, basically had a breakdown yeah. because she wouldn't talk about things, wouldn't, wouldn't deal with the Absolutely. issues. Yeah. Um, I don't think that that is particularly, um, has anything to do with being Myanmar, actually, okay. Okay. I, because I think that. Um, I mean, there's another character, you know, the cousin Kangzar, who who actually says to Etta, like, oh, right, right, you know, you, because I think it's being removed from what she saw and not actually processing what you know what she experienced, the trauma that she experienced as a child mm -hmm. or as a teenager. Um, she wasn't able to process that, and so she kind of partly because of the grandmother. Um, and so she sort of held it all in. Um, but I think also that, you know, that might be a little bit of my culture. <laughs> I mean, if there's anything autobiographical about the novel, it's it's kind of maybe that part of it, the the, uh, you know, the emotional part of it, mm -hmm. which and, and yeah. suppressing emotions and kind of figuring out how to. Um, how to express those emotions. Elizabeth, why don't you read a little bit from The Golden Land for us? Oh, sure. I would love to. Um, okay. Let's see. I will read just from the beginning. I think that's easiest. Wonderful. So, Chapter 1, Boston, Massachusetts, 2011. A thumb of ginger lies on the cutting board alongside several cloves of garlic and a pile of small red shallots, as if any minute Apois might resume chopping, grating, crushing. She was adamant about assembling her ingredients before beginning to cook, my grandmother. Suddenly, I'm eight years old again, standing next to her with my eyes ablaze, enduring the fumes of the onion in exchange for a rare taste of intimacy. Always prepare everything in advance, me, so the oil does not burn. We looked alike back then, or rather, I looked like her. A quarter Burmese, I had my grandmother's dark eyes and moon-shaped face. The same shiny black hair, mine tied into an ob obedient braid down the center of my back. Hers twisted into an elaborate knot the impossibly long tresses coiled around a tortoiseshell hair comb at the nape of her neck before cascading serpent-like down the center of her back. On closer inspection, the ginger is slightly shriveled, having sat in the open air for nearly a week now. 
I pick up the cutting board and tip the abandoned vegetables into the trash, then uncurl my fingers one by one and let the cutting board slide in on top of them with a thunk. The kitchen looks much as it always did. The white jasmine hanging above the sink, an empty teacup in the drying rack. The only signs of distress are the open cupboard above the stove and an overturned chair. As I set the chair upright, a can rolls out from under the lip of the counter. I bend down to pick it up. Chowco 100% premium coconut milk imported. The top of the can is crushed on one side, its label furrowed. So that's what Apua had been after when she fell. Staring down at the mangled can in my hand, I feel a dull ache in my chest. Not sorrow, something else. A sense of wrongness, that this is not how her life was meant to end. That our family might have turned out differently. When I was little, before the family reunion in Burma, before I met Shui and attended the protest march, before Apua's breakdown and my parents' divorce and Apua's declaration that we were no longer Burmese, before all that, she only ever cooked with home-pressed coconut milk obtained by grating the thick white kernel of a mature coconut, then squeezing the grated meat through a fine cloth. To think she died reaching for the canned stuff, imported from Thailand, no less. My younger sister Parker is the one who found her. Since quitting, or perhaps losing, the latest in a long string of jobs, Parker had begun spending quite a bit of time here, eating most of her meals with a poix, sometimes even spending the night. Our parents died years ago. For a while now, so for a while now, it's just been the three of us on this side of the world. Now two. Monday evening, Parker arrived at Aquas to find her sprawled out on the kitchen floor, unconscious. As I entered the ER, Parker began to weep. Etta, she cried, heaving the full weight of her body upon mine as if she were nine rather than 29. I stumbled backward, the glare of disinfectant and antiseptic lights making my head swirl. I couldn't believe Apua was gone. These last few days have been a blur of undertakers, morgue technicians, and well-meaning acquaintances. Parker attends to the well-wishers. She's better with people than I am, warmer and more accessible. At least that's what she says, and she's probably right. As the lawyer in our little family of two, I attend to the paperwork, which suits me fine. I find the banality of the forms soothing. Parker hasn't wanted to return to the house, so I'm taking care of all the logistics here, too. Next up are the estate lawyers and real estate agents. Today's visit, the first step toward putting a pause house on the market, which begins with cleaning out perishables. I open the fridge. Three bundles of spring onions, a posy of cilantro, one packet of thin egg noodles, and one whole chicken sitting unwrapped on a plate, its little feet tucked under its bum, skin dark and rubbery from prolonged exposure to the cold air. Oh no, Kaosue. That's what a pod been preparing the day she died. Noodles in a coconut chicken soup. My childhood favorite. I'll stop All there. Right. Thank you. That was Elizabeth Chick reading from The Golden Land. One of the things that Etta finds in her mother's house is a bag of marionette parts. Yes. Are marionettes um, a popular part of Myanmar culture? Well, I think, I don't know if they're popular in the sense that, you know, it's not like every household would have <laughs> marionettes, but... It's definitely um, an art form that goes back for hundreds of years. Um, it's actually fascinating. Um, the Burmese term for the marionettes is yokte, 
which means little people. And um, there was a time when the marionettes could actually say things in their performances, which performances in front of the king, which people could not say. <laughs> so they had a very special place in, um, you know, in the, the Burmese culture. Um, and they do still have shows today. So that was one of the things that I did, you know, pretty early on after arriving in Myanmar was to attend one of these, one of these performances. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. I mean, I highly recommend it. And I do have the link on my website to um, the organization that puts on these performances because you can you could watch it online. Actually, it's called the Tui U Puppet Theater. But this organization is really committed to um, preserving the art form. So when you go to watch a show, they, you know, they give you a little lecture about the history and the role in, in the culture. Um, and then you sit down to watch, they turn the lights off. And um, what's interesting is that the puppeteers, they stand behind waist high curtains. So you can see them, <laughs> but they're all, yeah, they're dressed in black. Um, and then the curtain is black. And as soon as the, the lights shine on the marionettes and they start dancing and to the music, which is this really traditional Myanmar music, it's very um, mesmerizing kind of. As soon as the performance starts, you forget that the, the puppeteers are even there. I mean, you just kind of fall into the story. And they're so intricately designed, um, you know, that they really they really move very fluidly and they they just seem so um so lifelike so um yeah so i think i went to see a performance and you know it was just one of the things that probably when i sat down to write i that was on my mind and so suddenly there were these broken marionette <laughs> pieces in, in a pause closet that Edda was discovering um but one of the things i think that is so neat about fiction writing is that if without those marionettes, I would not have um, discovered the character of the old Burmese puppeteer who lives in Boston. <laughs> so if I had not seen that show and started writing about that, you know, I don't know where the story I was going to say that character because... is actually crucial to understanding the whole story. Yeah, and he's and he's also just yeah, great, right? Absolutely. <laughs> like, so and how how many strings do those marionettes have? So the the really traditional ones have twenty or twenty one, wow. depending on the gender. Apparently, that's something wow. I read. Um, but some, I mean, often you do see them with fewer strings okay. than that. But would can yeah, it's like each joint. Can has a single a puppeteer handle all those strings? Or do they have multiple puppeteers? For one marionette, wow. yes, yeah. but they can't. Right, one. absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I think also that I believe, I hope I'm not wrong, but I'm pretty sure I read, this was a long time ago, but that originally I think maybe the puppeteers were all male, but now... Um, you know, the women puppeteers will handle the women characters, the female characters, and the men will handle, handle <laughs> the male characters. That's very cool. I had a marionette collection when I was a kid. I actually still have them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? I, my, mother, my father and my mother wrote a play for them that we would perform, like, for local civic groups and stuff. <laughs> now, another thing that is really shows up a lot in the Golden Land is food. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I had never lived in Asia before. So I had lived in Europe and, and several different countries in Africa when we first moved there. And, um, you know, it was just all so new to me, the, the, all of the different flavors and everything. And I, I just was, you know... I do love to eat, um, and also my family, you know, my husband also <laughs> loves to eat, so we we had a good time. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to share some of that, some of that magic. I do want to mention that your website is elizabethschick.com because you talked about the link to the puppets mm -hmm. from there, and you have a lot of other resources about Myanmar on 
on that site. And that's uh, S-H-I-C-K. Elizabeth Schick, yeah. That's correct, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more. We've mentioned briefly about the um, Association of Writers and Writing Programs, the AWP award that you won. What is this association and what does this award mean? The um, AWP is an association of, uh, as the, the name says, of writers and writing programs, um, which means that it's a, it's a nationwide association, which I, I believe um, all MFA programs, and I'm not sure about if undergraduate writing programs also belong to it, but I know that the MFA programs all belong to it. So I was automatically enrolled when, when I um, started my MFA, which I started in 2019. I mean, I graduated in 2019. I started in 2017. Um, it was just, uh, you know, I had an automatic membership. Um, so I didn't really know about it before that, but it's a great resource. Um, you know, they have, um, there's, there's lots of different programs that they do, but the, the flagship, um, conference is once a year they have a big conference so this year it's going to be in seattle um and it moves around every you know to different cities in the u.s uh yeah and then they also have um some awards they do so the award series series includes um the prize for the novel um there's a poetry prize a non-fiction book prize and a short fiction yes. i believe yeah, and they're all judged um, blindly. That's very, yeah, that's cool. Um, and is part of the prize publication? Oh, yes, yes, that is, um, yeah, that's, um, that, that's the prize. <laughs> there's a little bit, of, there's, a, there's also a small cash um, component, but it's it's nothing. Right, right, you know, huge. Yeah. But uh, the big prize is publication because, you know, that that's that's what we want as writers, right, is to get our work out there. Right, right. Um, and it looks like the, so, they're published by – the winners are each published by a university press, it looks like, for the most part. Um, and yes. so your publisher uh, is? Um, it's called New Issues, Poetry, and Prose. And they operate out of Western Michigan University. Okay. Um, they're a very, very small press. And as far as I understand, this um, the winner of the AWP Prize for the novel is actually the only work of fiction that they publish. Oh. Mostly, most of their work is poetry. Oh, that's interesting. Now, in your in yeah. your uh, press release, it refers to the University of Chicago Press also. Yeah, they're like under the umbrella of the University okay. of Chicago Press. Okay, great, great. Like that. And yeah. so the you must have finished the novel in what twenty twenty. Yeah, I so I I mean I finished a first draft actually in like oh, twenty sixteen, wow. and then I decided to go get my MFA. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, you know, it was the hot mess that I talked about earlier, and I, I knew that I needed to work on it. And I think I also just needed to take myself seriously as a writer. Um, so it's not to say that everybody needs to get an FM, MFA, but I, I needed to do it because I wasn't, I, I was, you know, I would, I would write, but then I wouldn't ever tell anybody I was writing, and I didn't have a writing community. Um, and also I needed the deadlines, you know. <laughs> so the online writing really? course that you wrote the first draft in was not part of an MFA program. No, that was, um, no, no, that was like writer's digest, <laughs> actually. <laughs> but it worked for you. It, it worked. I mean, it was, um, I think the title of the, the course was uh, 12 Weeks to a First Draft of a novel and it definitely did not work <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> but I did have 12 weeks of, you know, it gave me yes, a great start. Yeah, yeah. And so was the your MFA also an online program? It was a low residency program. 
So, um, and I did that at it's Leslie University, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the reason I chose it was because I have family um, in in the Boston area, but um, and because it's this low residency model, which is also becoming very popular. Um, so you go twice a year for a, what they call a residency, which is about ten days of very intense, intensive workshops and seminars and readings um you know it's it's wonderful but also very exhausting um and then in between those two residencies which are january and june you work with one mentor and you'd send you send by email your um actually sometimes you send it by post but for me since i was i was abroad i had to send it by email um you send in your pages and you get you know, and you have a dialogue about about that, but just with the one person. Interesting. And when the were you finished with the novel at the by that point? When you finished that program, was that you, okay? It's ready to go. It's ready to submit, or was there still more work to do? Um, the first part was pretty pretty polished because that was my MFA thesis. Um, so we have like a thesis at the end and it's about a hundred pages. So the first, you know, part one was, was my thesis. And, and then I had, um, close to a finished draft of the rest. I had been through it all, but I did continue to work on it. But it, so I graduated in 2019 and then shortly after we moved from Myanmar, we left, we left the country, um, ended up moving to Italy and, you know, so that, took a lot of my attention for a little while so I didn't actually work on it for a while and then I and then I finished it up and I applied to wow. this contest well congratulations it's a wonderful book it's really um I, you know fun to read it's really it draws you in you want to know what's happening what story what what was going on here and and you're learning so much I was learning so much about um Myanmar history that I did not know. One of the one of the we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask one of the characters is an underground journalist. And how did you like know about how they might how an underground journalist might work? Um, ah. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I mean, the, the character is not the character came first. Um, and then I I realized that he he was a journalist. I mean, it fits him perfectly. Um, and so I, you know, I got in touch with some journalists and I just talked to them about, you know, what was it like during that period? Um, because, of course, when I was there, it was already open. The censorship had been lifted and everything. But prior to, to 2010, the censorship laws were so strict. There were very, very you know, almost no, no um, newspapers or magazines, or if they were, they were just censored to death. So most of the journalists had to smuggle out their work. Um, and so I just asked somebody, I said, how did that work? I mean, I just was so fascinated. And that's where I got the detail, which I did, I, I think, include in the novel, which that they would you know, smuggle the pages out in like crates of lentils <laughs> or some other, some other kind of produce, um, which I just, that's know, a great that detail. Yes. So that's much. a great detail. You know? Yeah. The dedication of those people. Um, yeah. So, so Elizabeth, we're out of time <laughs> and I just want to thank you for, for talking with us today. The Golden Land, um, probably available wherever books are sold and um mm -hmm. and are you working on your next novel um i'm working on revising the one that i oh, had written great. before which is set in malawi. it's set it's set where um, sorry in malawi in um sort of southeast um africa wonderful it's um yeah, and and so I yeah I hope to to try to get that published. Um, I'd like to say it's kind of a cross between um, like out of Africa and Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> very interesting that you say that because um, my closing quote for today is: "She felt a little bit worse and a little bit better than she had when she got here, 
maybe that was the true meaning of going home. And that quote is from Sonali Dev from Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors. (laughs) Thank you, Elizabeth, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you so much.